Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am pleased to be joined um, by former Deputy Secretary of State and advisor to the Biden campaign, Tony Blinken. Uh, also old friend, Tony Blinken and, you know, Tony, we, you know, I, I've recall back fondly conversations we've had when you were in the government, when you were the deputy secretary, uh, when I was writing books about process in the, in the national security, uh, and foreign policy realm. And I gotta say, having written two such books and contemplating the third, I've never seen the process so gutted and dysfunctional. They they don't have principals meetings. They don't have deputies meetings. They've got the least qualified national security advisor than since, you know, possibly the beginning of the Reagan administration, maybe ever. Um, uh, the agencies don't talk to the center. The president doesn't listen to advice. Um, and, and, and we're now starting to see the consequences of this. But I'm wondering, to begin with, do you think I'm overstating this? No, if anything, I fear you could be understating it. Uh, you know, and it's it's funny because I obviously know for many years your your terrific work on this, and um, I actually wrote about this in the Trump administration a few months back, and the piece uh, was I think entitled "No People, No Process, No Policy," and that unfortunately sums up uh, the way the administration is approached. Uh, national security and foreign policy for the better part of, uh, of three years. Uh, the um, the right people generally are not in place, and of course, the, law, the the further you get into any administration, the more that atrophies. But we're we're talking about um, you know a C team or a D team instead of an A or B team. Um, but as as bad and as, in in some ways worse, there has been virtually uh, no process. The interagency process that we know so well uh, has uh, has fallen apart. Um, the meetings don't happen. They're not doing what um, administrations, Republican and Democrat, have done, certainly going back to the, the Kennedy NSC post-Cuban Missile Crisis and, and even to some extent before that, which was getting all of the critical stakeholders around the same table to develop options, um, to uh, debate um, responses, and to present the president uh, with um, some uh, coherent possibilities, and then uh, get the president to decide on what our policy is. And you know, we both know no no policy perfectly survives first contact, but at least it gives you a place to start, and at least it gives you a way to anticipate uh, second and third order effects, and to go from there. All of that seems to have gone out the window. Well, you mentioned in your reference to your article uh, the, the the three pillars of national security and foreign policy uh, that academics talk about all the time, which is to say people and process and policy. Uh, there's a fourth one they don't tend to talk about, a fourth P that they don't tend to talk about, 
uh, and that's politics. And yet, clearly, mm-hmm. politics is playing a big role in this. And I just don't, I don't just mean interagency politics, but of course, um, in the instance of, for example, this current uh, Ukraine scandal, which is at the center of the House impeachment investigation, mm-hmm. you have a blurring of the lines, a president who is withholding aid uh, in order to advance a personal political objective. Uh, And the central, I think, argument that the Republican uh, defenders of the president are making right now um, and are likely to make for the next couple of months is well, this is how foreign policy is carried out. And Mick Mulvaney made it in his ill-fated news conference. But, you know, they, we, people mm. meet, they talk, they, they horse trade. Uh, and, and, you know, if the president thinks that corruption in, the Ukraine, in, in Ukraine is a, a serious issue, then corruption in Ukraine is a serious issue. And he has such latitude mm. with regard to foreign policy that he is the final arbiter of whether or not this is in the national interest and don't bother us. I mean, I think that's going to be the argument. I'm just wondering what your response is to it. Well, on one level, of course, sure. If um, we determine the national interest is, is X and to get to X that involves some horse trading. Sure. That's, that's, that's often how uh, foreign policy is made. But of course, as you pointed out in this instance, this wasn't about advancing, uh, the uh, nation's policy. It wasn't about advancing the nation's interests. It was all about advancing the president's personal political interests and turning our foreign policy into a tool of his reelection, uh, weaponizing the State Department to advance his um, political uh, uh, prospects. Um, that's fundamentally different. Uh, hard to think of anything more different uh, than uh, what Mulvaney was trying to say uh, and trying to ascribe this to, which was the kind of horse trading that goes into advancing what uh, is uh, the nation's policy. So uh, I can't think of uh, anything more different. I can't think of anything more basically corrupt uh, than what uh, it seems the president has done. But what's, you know, David, what's so deeply troubling about this too is that in doing this, he's managed to corrupt um, many agencies of government, uh, portions of the National Security Council staff, uh, the office of the vice president, uh, the State Department, uh, perhaps the Defense Department, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, each of these has been weaponized, in effect, uh, in, in service of his own political interests. Um, and uh, that is, um, I think, about as bad as it gets. Yeah, now, one of the things that I think is somewhat heartening in all of this is that despite the efforts of the White House to suppress um, testimony about what happened in this particular case, uh, a number of uh, professionals, uh, um, members of the civil service or the foreign service or the military uh, or the intelligence community, apparently, in the case of the whistleblower, have come forward and said, um, no, I I realize that speaking out could put my career at risk, uh, but this was wrong. Uh, I said it was wrong. Um, uh, I was overruled. Uh, and now I'm going to go to the Congress. I'm going to say it publicly. And, uh, you know, this was particularly striking in the case of uh, folks in the State Department, uh, where you had Ambassador Bill Taylor and you had 
um, uh, you know, others who who have stepped forward, and, and even in testimony that took place today, um, where people who continue to work for the Trump administration or continue or or have a have a an interest in working for the Trump administration say, no, there's a line here, uh, pushing out our ambassador for no reason uh, uh, because you she was resisting this uh, mm. this this political initiative is inappropriate uh, and and you know it's going to make you a little bit proud of 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 the fact that these professionals take their oath seriously even if the president doesn't uh, yeah no I couldn't have said it said it better I know a lot of these people I had the the, the privilege and honor of working with um, with several of them um, and yeah it, I do have a lot of pride in the actions that they've taken at the risk. Of, uh, of their own careers. Um, it's extraordinary, but it's also incredibly disheartening because we've seen them now attacked in the most vicious terms by the White House. And of course, we've also seen them attacked uh, in, in certain media. What I wish I had seen, especially when it comes to the State Department employees, is the Secretary of State standing up and defending them. Uh, but he's been AWOL. Uh, when Yovanovitch was under attack, Bill Taylor, Mike McKinley, all people that in one way or another he hired in effect um he has um he's been silent and he's at best been um acquiescent to the politicization of the state department the weaponization of the state department so i wish we'd hear from him in speaking up and defending his people what i can tell you david and you probably heard the same thing is that morale at the department um is uh is about as low as it gets and it would make a big difference if the Secretary of State would stand up for um, for his people. Well, the Secretary of State, like the Attorney General of the United States, seems to have bought into the notion that the well-being of the president is perhaps paramount among our national interests. And he goes out and he is, I mean, he, he does seem to be um, uh, also putting his own Political future there. I mean, in, in in the same category, he's recently gone to, you know, Kansas on an official trip to, um, uh, you know, promote the University of or the Wichita State Shockers and you know and tweets and things, be, as though he were running for the Senate from Kansas. But quite apart from that, uh, he, he he defends the president, and and not. Members of the State Department, and you know, I mean, what kind of an effect do you think it has when people say, "Don't you know, the Ambassador Yovanovitch is is being mistreated," um, and he says, "Sorry, I'm not going to do anything about it." Well, look, it, it it guts morale, and it's not as if there wasn't already a problem at the department. What we've seen over the last three years is um, a mass exodus at virtually every level. Um, applications to take the Foreign Service exam are down by 50% uh, at the middle ranks of the department. Folks who are in their uh, 10th or 12th or 13th year who will be the senior leaders of the department in another 10 years, but are already doing incredibly important work. Uh, there's been a, a very significant departure at their level. And then our most uh, senior diplomats, uh, we've lost one after the other in the last three years. In fact, uh, Secretary Pompeo's predecessor, Secretary Tillerson actually had a buyout program for our most senior people, <laughs> the very people you would want uh, to make sure we're uh, there as long as possible because they have the experience, the knowledge, the wisdom to really advance your foreign policy. 
so you're already dealing with a foundation that was getting very shaky. And to, to add this to the mix, to have people feel that their, their boss does not have their back, um, just compounds what's already a significant problem. Uh, you know, it's not an isolated problem either. I, you know, we, we have seen patterns of behavior where U.S. foreign policy is subordinated to uh, Trump family interests, president's personal interests, um, and his political interests. And I think one of the things that I find most interesting about the Ukraine case is that it is the Russia case. It's the same case that we started out with. Mm -hmm. It is a president mm -hmm. uh, seeking the aid of foreign governments to win elections. It is many of the same contacts. It is the place where Paul Manafort had his ties. The, the, you know, a lot of these long-standing ties to oligarchs in Ukraine who had ties mm -hmm. to the Russians um, go all the way back to 2016 and to the campaign, if not before that. Um, and, you know, I worry a little bit that the Congress of the United States, in their zeal to make impeachment easy to understand, is, ignore, or is, is, is likely to sidestep or downplay the fact that the, the abuses that have taken place here are actually extremely complicated, far-ranging, and they cover everything from the 100-plus uh, meetings with the Russians that were documented by Mueller uh, to the obstruction that took place to protect the Russians, to the rewards that have been given to the Russians, whether in Syria or uh, in Crimea or with you know, pulling out of the INF treaty, which benefited the Russians in some ways, or attacking mm -hmm. NATO, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and then on into this, on into this case, it seems all of a piece to me. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I wonder if if you agree with that take, and you know, how 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 do you communicate? I mean, you're advising the Biden campaign. You know, how do you communicate to the American people that? On a, on, a, on a regular basis, almost in every single instance that the opportunity arises, Trump defaults to placing Kremlin interests ahead of national interests. Well, I think there are two things going on here that are related but, uh, but separate. One is exactly what you just said, which is an extraordinary pattern. And it's, it's, it's hard to know, uh, you know, what the the reasons actually are, but we do see the results. And that is exactly, as you said, a defaulting to Putin's uh, interests, to Russia's interests uh, ahead of our own. And, and time and again, President Trump seems to be playing for the other side. Um, and it's, uh, it's really hard to fathom. And there are all sorts of theories as to why he might be doing that. Um, but regardless of, of uh, in a sense of why, the, uh, the results are there. That's one thing. Separate uh, but related in this instance is the fact that repeatedly now um, the president has sought um, the assistance of foreign countries in um, advancing his political prospects and in interfering in our elections. He did it in 2016 when he called on the Russians publicly to um, turn over any more emails they might have. Uh, he did it, of course, now in the case of, uh, of Ukraine. And then even after the Ukraine story broke, he's on the lawn of the White House and asked the Chinese for, to manufacture dirt on his leading political opponent, um, Vice President Biden. You know, our, our first president, George Washington, warned all of us, uh, and our founders warned all of us, 
that maybe the greatest uh, danger we face as a nation would be the efforts of other countries to interfere in our democracy and in our elections. Um, well, we now have a president who, instead of warning us about that, is actively soliciting it. Uh, it's hard to, uh, to fathom that we've gotten to this point. Uh, it is. Uh, I, you know, I was thinking back because Washington actually had to deal with that right off the bat because yeah. uh, half his cabinet thought that the French were our friends and should interfere, and half thought that despite the war that we'd fought, we'd be better off siding with the British and took their side. And he was to you know, torn between the two of them. And I think an interesting footnote to American history that most people don't know is that uh, when he ultimately uh, uh, got rid of his second secretary of state for being too close to the French, um, his first secretary of state, who was also very close to the French, actually called for his impeachment, Washington's impeachment, which was the oh, first instance in the first instance of somebody to, you know, a president being threatened by impeachment, and it was Washington from uh, Jefferson. Uh, in any event, I sorry, it's a sidetrack. No, but, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great footnote. I didn't know it. Uh, so, in any event, um, at, you know, as as we look at this, we see U.S. foreign policy um, with regard to China, with regard to Russia, with regard to the Middle East, and and with regard to Turkey with regard to our NATO allies, with regard to North Korea, um, uh, and with regard to major issues uh, ranging from trade uh, to uh, the climate crisis to arms control, um, in, a, in, a, in a state of disarray that is unprecedented, and that's saying something since, you know, the Bush administration, mm -hmm. you know, managed to commit the, 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 the greatest foreign policy mistake in modern U.S. history. And that was only, you know, um, in the, you know, 16 years ago, 17 years ago. Um, but 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 on a, on a sort of worldwide basis, this is worse. Democratic, you know, candidates are, 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 mm -hmm. are running to, to fix that somehow. How long is it going to take to fix it when you've when so much damage has been done? Well, if um, a Democrat is elected this time around and we only have four years of Trump, I think um, uh, a lot of this is with a lot of hard work. Um, a lot of this is fixable. If we wind up with eight years of Trump and the world sees his election not as an aberration, but as a deliberate choice by the American people, then I think we're in really, really big trouble uh, because people will take this as some kind of fundamental change in the character of our country. Uh, and uh, as a result in our foreign policy and the way we act uh, in the world. So my hope is that um, uh, a Democrat there a little over a year from now and can start this work. And look, I'm biased. I work for Joe Biden. Uh, but I think we need someone who's actually ready to do that from day one, who um, knows the issues, knows the people, has the deep experience. We don't have a lot of time to waste. So much damage has been done by, uh, by this president that um, we really have to get at it uh, immediately. Um, look, I think it starts with a few simple propositions, David. One is um, the next president um, needs to, and, and if it's a Democrat, I'm convinced will, um, start by embracing Democrats and rejecting autocrats instead of the opposite, which is what Trump is doing. That in and of itself will send a powerful message that we're a little bit back to, uh, uh, back to, to some sense of normalcy. Um, but what I worry about is this. 
I think we both know from uh, working in, the, in this area, uh, thinking about it, reading about it, studying it, is that whether we like it or not, the world doesn't tend to organize itself. And one of three things, either the United States plays a lead role in doing some of that uh, organizing and helping to set the, set the norms and the, and the rules and develop the institutions that govern relations among, among, among nations, something that we've done until Trump uh, for um, 70 plus years, in, very imperfectly with lots of mistakes, but nonetheless, uh, or if we don't do it, one of two things, either someone else will, and increasingly that someone else professes to be China, but probably not in a way that advances our own interests and values, or maybe uh, just as bad, no one does it. Uh, and then you tend to have vacuums and vacuums tend to get filled by malevolent forces before they're filled by, by good ones. And as my friend Bob Kagan might say, the jungle grows back. Um, so I think that's the choice that, that we face. And, um, you know, this uh, abdication of responsibility, uh, as well as gutting of America's word and credibility uh, around the world, uh, is making those two other scenarios, someone else does it or no one does it, much more likely. And I think uh, as a result, the world will be much more dangerous for our interests. Uh, well, well said. But, you know, I, I think as, as, as we look forward um, to 2020 and as we look forward to the campaign, um, I, I think you can anticipate uh, and other advisors on other campaigns can anticipate um, a lot of, you know, smart political operatives saying, you know, foreign policy doesn't win campaigns and <laughs> we'll get We'll you know we'll get to this later, um, and yet the 2016 campaign had Russia as a centerpiece of it. Um, to a large extent, um, the, the you know the Bush era turned on response to the war, uh, the, the terrorist attacks, and then uh, a reaction to the war on terror as it was being conducted. That led in turn to uh, to Obama as much as did any economic stress. Um, and of course, a lot of the economic stress that has made Trump supporters feel alienated is is that uh, you know median wages in the United States have remained pretty stagnant for forty years. Yeah, uh, they have not benefited from that. They don't feel like they benefit from trade. I was a trade official in the Clinton administration, and yeah. we were a little bit glib. You know, we were a little bit rising tide lifts all boats. Everything's going to be fine. That's macroeconomics, and you know, trust us. And and it didn't happen. It didn't benefit them. And I I, I think, you know, this this gets us into a a, a, a a situation in which a foreign policy is central to these elections, and and b Democrats have have not been really really good in explaining to our base why engagement in the world is a net positive, not for a corporation or for the 1%, but for Main Street. And I'm wondering yep. how, you, how you crack that nut. Yeah, David, I think you're exactly right. And we're, we're not very good at narrative. We're not very good at telling stories. Um, and the president has, has told a bunch of simple stories that resonate with people, you know, that uh, all these other countries are a bunch of freeloaders who take advantage of our largesse and our, and our protection, uh, don't pay for any of it, uh, entangle us in their problems, and we don't need any of that. And that, that resonates with people. And, of course, there's always been a strain of that in our, 
in our politics and in our foreign policy. So I do think we have to do a better job in, in, in telling the story. And I, I'm not, I wouldn't hold myself out to be um, uh, the world's best storyteller, but I do think there's a, there's, a, there's a compelling story to tell. And it seems to me there are two things that we should focus on, or at least consider focusing on. One is that, you know, yeah, we did make a lot of investments, especially after World War II, in the security and, and, and prosperity and well-being of other countries um, through everything from the Marshall Plan to setting up the international financial institutions, uh, to putting uh, you know NATO on its feet, et cetera. Um, but I think it's fair to say that um, the investments that we made came back to us 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times in three very basic ways. We got new markets for our products that otherwise would not have been there. We got new partners uh, who could work with us to deal with increasingly complex global challenges. And we got new allies who would help us deter aggression or if we had to, fight alongside us. And that sort of enlightened self-interest system that we know so well, for all of its faults and shortcomings, certainly got the big picture right. No more war uh, among the great powers and um, a more predictable, uh, open, uh, connected world in which um, countries could um, lift themselves up and in the process lift hundreds of millions of people out of, uh, out of poverty, all of which was was good for us. So those investments were smart investments. They weren't done out of the goodness of our hearts or because we're suckers, as the president might say. We did it because it was in, as we said, in our enlightened self-interest, and that, that proved itself out. That's one thing. I think the other thing is, when you talk to people about what are they concerned about, what are some of the challenges that, uh, that, that, that worry them about the future, you know, you'll get, a whole, you'll get a series of different answers. For a lot of people, it's, uh, it's climate change, rightly so, given the existential nature of that threat. Uh, it may be uh, anything from, um, you know, uh, the uh, persistence of terrorism and terrorist networks. It may be uh, folks who are leaping firewalls and, and, and hacking their way into people's lives. Uh, it may be the disruption of new, new technologies. Uh, it may be uh, people who are concerned about aggression from um, a declining Russia or a, a rising China. But what we do know is whatever the, the, the threat is that's on people's minds or dislocations in the international economic system, we do know that not a single one of these challenges uh, can be met by any one country acting alone, even a country as powerful as the United States. And not a single one can be adequately addressed by building a wall, no matter how high it is. So there's a greater premium than there's ever been, at least in my uh, uh, career, in actually finding constructive ways to work with other countries to deal with problems that affect our own people um, and to um, use what the United States has uniquely which is uh, some ability to actually mobilize others uh, toward uh, collective action and the, and, the, and the collective good. So I think when you sort of uh, talk through some of this stuff with folks, they get it. And they also feel intuitively that, you know what, the world's a complicated place. It's gotten more complicated. We're sure better off uh, acting in it when we can act with friends. Uh, and when we alienate them, when we actually blow up our alliances, how can that possibly be good for us? Uh, and of course, that's exactly what what this president has done. So I think there, there are threads of stories there that we need to need to tell. But at the end of the day, uh, we have to bring it down to, to, to people's real lives. We've seen the terrible destructive impact of the trade wars the president has has wrought. Uh, and it's having a, a direct and real impact on our farmers uh, in Iowa, on our manufacturers and, of course, on all our consumers. If he was at least getting something for it, that might be one thing. But uh, the art of uh, no deal, unfortunately, is um, hurting a lot of people. Well, I think, you know, that there tends to be cycles. We don't have to 
you know, get all Hegelian about it there, but we tend, <laughs> you know, to we tend to go, you know, back and forth in these cycles. And and you speak rightly of the terrible destructive impact of the president's trade wars. I think there are a lot of people who are members of unions or farmers or others who would say, well, let me tell you about the terrible destructive impact of the trade deals that we've done. Yeah. And yeah. and and I, you know, I think they they may have a, a lot of that wrong, but. But they also have some of it right because trade deals. No, they, have, no, they, have, they, they absolutely do. And of course, you know, uh, in, 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 you, you have to be uh, respectful of what people are actually experiencing and how they're, they're living it. And of course, we, we, we both know um, some, many of the challenges people face that they may attribute to trade may also be a result of automation and other phenomena. But it's, it's true. Uh, and, and look, NAFTA, for example, is a pretty good, um, a pretty good example, I think. In the aggregate, it was probably a plus, um, but very uh, distinct uh, and identifiable groups of folks were hurt by it, and the side agreements that were in the agreement uh, were never enforced. Uh, and so I'd be mad too. Um, but at the same time, we have to figure out a way not to throw the baby out with the with the bathwater. The bottom line is, and you know, you, you know this so well. Look. Um, as it happens, 95% of the world's consumers happen not to live in the United States. So we need a system that's open enough to be able to reach them. That's clearly to our benefit. Uh, if, we're, if we're closing down, if we're leading the protect, protectionist parade, then at the end of the day, uh, it's going to rebound against us. And uh, it's going to be a lot harder for us to sell our products and our services around the world. Um, and that's not going to be good for, uh, for anyone's bottom line. Um, I think you know, uh, the president actually deserves some credit for taking a tougher line with, with China. Um, I think there's a lot of actual agreement on that because the lack of reciprocity in the way they were dealing with the international trade system and the international economy was really unsustainable. Now, the way he's gone about it has been totally wrong uh, and, and counterproductive, but the basic uh, idea of needing to get tougher is probably uh, the right one. But so is the basic idea of making sure that trade deals in the future actually serve the interests of the middle class. And I think there are ways to do that that we haven't um, done in the past. One is making sure that we're actually investing in our, in our own people in meaningful ways uh, across the, uh, the economic spectrum, everything from uh, you know, uh, investing in infrastructure and in healthcare and in schools to uh, basic R&D, science and technology, as well as all of the things that we never really quite gotten right, which is uh, you know, adjustment assistance and so forth. Uh, but another big piece of this is making sure that we're actually working with like-minded nations who actually have similar interests. And so again, China's an instructive case, I think. Um, if you're going to get tougher with China, you're much better off doing it when you're working in concert with your, uh, with your allies and partners who are similarly agreed. Alone, we're 25% of the world's GDP. When we're working with other democratic partners, we're 50%, a lot harder for China to ignore. And yet, of course, the president's managed to alienate the very countries who should be and would be with us in trying to get China to change its ways so that our own workers are um, our advantage. But last thing I'll say is this, you know, I continue to believe David that uh, trans-Pacific partnership was the right thing to do uh, and that um, uh, getting out of it and tearing it up was a profound strategic mistake. But I recognize that uh, some people feel that um, the, the agreement was not uh, good enough. And maybe, maybe that's true, but, from my own perspective, um, we had an agreement that was much more a race to the top than a race to the bottom. 
and in ways, for example, that NAFTA didn't adequately do, uh, it did put more in the forefront, protecting uh, workers, protecting the environment, protecting intellectual property, dealing with the subsidization of state-owned enterprises, creating greater transparency. Not perfectly, and any negotiation by definition involves compromise, uh, but um, you know a lot better. In the future going forward, one thing I think would be helpful is to find meaningful ways to have um, people representing labor and representing the environment actually at the table at the takeoff, not just at the landing. Because if you want their political support, if you want what you do to be sustainable, they have to be in on the takeoff, not just the landing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And by the way, you know, when I was a trade official in the Clinton administration, uh, you know, there were people pushing for that within the administration. And I recall that a lot of us who are more on the macro side of things uh, pushed back and we were wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, we were we were wrong to do that. And we were wrong to take an approach that primarily benefited big companies or that the metric was GDP and the metric was not Main mm -hmm. Street. And I think, you know, what we have to look for on mm -hmm. all of these things is a mainstream metric. How do you measure whether this is working yeah. for the average person or not? Uh, and, you know, and that brings me to another point. We're running out of time here, but it's kind of a final point. And I, I think it's kind of lost in the sauce. You know, we're having democratic debates and there's 12 people on the stage. And uh, while there's not a whole lot of discussion about foreign policy, you know, we say, well, you know, there's centrists here and there are progressives there. And there's tension because some people want uh, everybody to get, you know, health care right away paid for by the state. And other people say maybe there's an incremental way to get there. Uh, some people want a Green New Deal and other people say, well, let's just improve the environment um, uh, by the following X mm -hmm. uh, steps. But, you know, what strikes me as, as, a, as a Democrat is um, this is a, an incremental debate. All Democrats want more health care. All Democrats mm -hmm. want more respect for the climate crisis. All Democrats believe science needs to drive that. All Democrats think that the United States needs to respect our alliances and and our, and our allies and, and so forth. And you know, I and 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 in every single instance, let's just take the foreign policy ones. The president mm -hmm. is for you know gated community withdrawal from the world. Democrats are not. The president is against multilateralism. Democrats support international mm -hmm. institutions and burden sharing. The president doesn't care about the rule of law. Democrats do. The you know the pre, you know et cetera et cetera. It seems to me that the Democratic Party represents a different foreign policy thesis than the Republican Party does right now. And that mm -hmm. even as we figure out who the Democrat is, that's a useful point to make. Do you think I'm oversimplifying? No, I think you're right. I think that 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 is fundamentally true. And of course, candidates have to try and distinguish themselves uh, during primary season, uh, even when it comes to foreign policy. Uh, and so you know, you tend to magnify the differences instead of the similarities. I think in this particular election, it's a little bit unfortunate that we're not focusing more on what unites us and what the common vision is, because the overriding uh, issue is um, change <laughs> in terms of change in the White House. And uh, Democrats are all united on that proposition. And I think you're right, united in, in the basic fundamentals. Now, look, in fairness, there are some differences that are worth that are worth debating. We talked we just talked about one of them when it comes to trade. 
I think some uh, in the party, uh, to me at least in what they're saying, veer a little bit too closely to uh, to protectionism, uh, even as they may be motivated by exactly what you said, which is finding ways to make sure the system is working uh, for Main Street and for the middle class. But there are legitimate discussions to be had there. There's another one that's legitimate, and that's this, this question about the, the so-called forever wars. I think every Democrat uh, is probably against um, the um, indefinite deployment of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans into some far, faraway place with no clear exit strategy. Um, and they all stand against it. But um, there's a big difference between that, for example, uh, and um, having a few hundred special operators supporting local forces and leveraging uh, tens of thousands uh, of locals to do the heavy lifting to advance a common security interest, as we were doing in Syria. So I am troubled when I hear some people say, uh, you know, we've got to get everyone uh, out of the Middle East. Well, yes, we should we should end the, the forever war scenarios, but that doesn't mean uh, we should um, remove our entire footprint, and it doesn't mean uh, that we shouldn't be doing things that are both smart and strong, like having special operators and intelligence assets who can leverage local forces in an effective way. That's also a discussion I think that's worth having. But at the end of the day, you're right. I think we, it would be nice if we focused more on what really brings us together, because the, the differences with President Trump are so stark uh, and so compelling uh, that that's where we should be putting the focus. Well, it's, it strikes me as a historian of foreign policy, um, when when you talk about forever wars, I, I was just thinking about it in the context of of U.S. history, and that coming out of World War One and World War Two, our concern was how do you achieve lasting peace, and the way that mm-hmm. we determined to do that was to do all the things you were talking about, which is build alliances, in some cases deploy troops forward, in some cases get involved in 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 quite narrow specific. Uh, it, it ways to reduce threats, um, but it actually worked fairly well. We have, you know, we haven't had a world war, and 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 it's because we've been engaged. And and the question is whether complete disengagement, which is a large extent what the nationalist policy of Trump uh, 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 is advocating, pushes us towards, actually uh, may end. Uh, you know, the the forever wars, but it will also end the lasting peace and it will put us at risk. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, you know, as fundamental a, a difference as, as we can find anywhere. Um, I, well, I think we... Yes, go ahead. No, no well, I was I, say, what, what, what worries me, David, is that it will take some very significant cataclysmic event to um, wake us from the... Um, from the path that we're on now. Uh, and I hope that's not the case. I hope that we can come to our, our senses um, logically uh, and, uh, and, and calmly, but I worry that it's going to, that, you know, we may need a Titanic moment and that would be a tragedy. Uh, it would be, it, 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 it would be. And I, you know, I, I think all of us hold our breath as we look forward to the uh, last year of the Trump administration, theoretically, that we don't encounter that cataclysmic moment between now and then, and that we, in fact, somehow find a way to avoid it. Clearly, having people like you out there and advising Democratic candidates is an encouraging step in that regard. Uh, and I am sure I speak for all of our um, listeners uh, in thanking you for spending the time with us. And I hope as the campaign unfolds, you'll spend some more time with us because I know. 
new issues will emerge and uh, and 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 you have you know insights that are extremely useful so thanks thanks very much tony and we look forward to talking to you again thanks for having me david and always a pleasure to talk to you thank you deep state radio is a production of the deep state radio network a division of trg interactive media our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.